welcome. You're listening to the Wine and Whiteboards podcast. We're a team of five badass women who will be your sommeliers to the marketing world. We work and whiteboard together at our nine to five every day in B2B marketing. We're a small, scrappy team that's picked up a few secret hacks along the way, and we want to share our crazy ideas with you. Let's call it an anything but ordinary guide to marketing and design. From Chardonnay to Rosé, we've got your marketing sips and design tips. Now that's worth raising a glass to, so grab your favorite vino and join us. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Wine and Whiteboards podcast. You have everybody here today. You have Katie, Kelly, Sarah, Paige, and myself, Charlotte. And we're going to be diving into an interesting topic today. We're going to be covering things that we never knew we'd be doing as marketers and designers, because there's a lot of things that you learn in school or cover when you're taking courses, whether it's formal, informal, that you learn about marketing and design. However, there's a whole different side of marketing that pops up once you actually have to start applying these concepts and ideas to real life or role that you're in. So we wanted to share a few things with you today that we just never learned in school and wished we maybe had, or maybe we did and it didn't resonate with us because we weren't in the workforce yet. So first off, before we dive in, I'm going to have everybody introduce what we're drinking today. So I actually am just drinking water right now because I have a migraine that I've been struggling with. My husband and I did open a bottle of the Carnivore Cabernet that was bourbon barrel aged. I've been into those bourbon barrel aged ones. So I'm going to definitely have a glass of that later tonight. Sorry about your headache, Paige. Yeah, I've been struggling with it like the last two days. I don't, it's, I feel like it's the weather change maybe or something, but it's like when you get like a reoccurring one where it comes and goes throughout the day, it's like terrible. Brutal. Especially since we all just look at our computers all day, you know, like we can't get over it. What else are you guys drinking? I am drinking a glass of the Cab Merlot from Bry's Estate, which might be shocking to you guys that I still have some bottles left after our last recording when I said that I ordered a bunch. There are still some left over. I hold them off for nice occasions. All right. So this is Katie. I'll go ahead. I'm drinking a Malbec, which is not in my usual realm of wines, I guess. My husband got it. It's called Esa del Gaucho, and I just looked up what Escuela means, and it translates to spur. I don't know. I guess I don't really get the name. It's good. I'd buy it again. So it's like a, it's a Spanish Malbec? Yeah. I Whenever know. I have, like, Spanish-flavored wines, they're always very rich and have a lot of earthy tones. Does it kind of feeling like that? I don't know about earthy, but rich. Spicy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe a little spicy. This is Sarah. Today I'm drinking Red, R-E-D-D. It's a semi-dry from Mobby, and I got it in my subscription that came last month. This is the third bottle I had left, so I was excited. I was going to go off of Paige. They also sent a red that's a bourbon barrel aged sparkling wine. I was trying this one, and then I was going to compare it to the one that's the bourbon barrel aged and see if there's any difference. There's definitely going to be a difference. Like you'll notice the bourbon caramel type of aftertaste. I I definitely recommend for everybody to try because I feel like it's getting more popular. They have like a cute little, I don't know, is it a haiku? This probably isn't a haiku, but they have it on the back where it's like, 
dark red berry aromas, soft tannin kiss, cozy fireside sweetheart. And I've been drinking at fireside because we've been having a fire every night. So I've been enjoying it. That's amazing. I don't remember the definition of a haiku, but I feel like the way you read it, Sarah, made it a haiku and I liked it. (laughs) So this is Charlotte. I am drinking a new wine that I'm trying. It's called Social. It's a sparkling wine and it's the elderflower apple flavor. It's pretty good. I guess it's a sparkling sake. It's interesting. I don't know if it's different because it says sparkling wine and sparkling sake wine. So I don't know. But it's all organic. It's sulfite free, GMO free. And it's pretty good. So I highly recommend it. I picked it up at Kroger. It looked delicious. I've never seen the combination of both. It's good. Is sake technically rice wine? Is that what sake is? Yeah. I'm going to say that your wine is having an identity crisis. It's not sure if it's sake or wine. (laughs) I think it is having an identity crisis. And it says it was made in Chicago. So if it's sake wine made in Chicago, I don't understand what it's doing. It definitely has an identity crisis happening. Sounds like a fusion (laughs) restaurant that's like going to fail. Charlotte, I was going to say you should check out Bluefin because they have this plum sake that's really good. And they have a lot of drinks with sake, like mixed cocktails that have sake. That sounds super good. I'm going to have to go there. I haven't been. All right. So now that you know what we are all drinking, I thought we'd play a little game here where each of us just gives a little bit of background where we share how many years it's been since we've graduated college, not high school, and what our perceptions were about marketing before actually getting into the field or working closely with a marketing team. Because not all of us went to school for marketing and some of us did. And I think it's interesting to hear the perspectives of what you think it is or what the expectations were versus what the reality is. I can start. It's been six years since I was graduating from college. So not too long, but still feels like a century. I honestly thought when I graduated, I'd be in a studio working with all graphic designers and we'd be doing these amazing branding things for corporations. I don't know. I definitely didn't expect myself to be working so closely with marketers and then not have any exposure in college collaborating with the both. Like I find that a very weird disconnect. So that was kind of a weird real world perception. So this is Sarah and it's unfortunately been 11 years since I graduated from college. That was back in 2009 when I feel like the world fell out, but that was the economic recession and fast forward to now and things are just as crazy. So who knows? Anyways, when I graduated, I had a liberal arts degree. It was a BFA in art and design with an emphasis in scientific illustration. I don't know what I thought I was going to be doing. I thought that I would go become a medical illustrator and draw anatomical things for textbooks, but that didn't pan out. I took no marketing classes, nothing with communication. It was all either science or art related, and it wasn't even anything digital. It was all hand drawing, like life drawing and things like that. So Sarah, my husband has a bunch of those books, the medical books that have those anatomical drawings because he went to school for it, obviously. And now they've been doing apps. So you almost had to go into graphic design as the next step to be able to do it digitally, which is just a whole nother cool realm. You can pull back the bones and see the muscles and then it's just like a click. So it's a very cool interactive experience on those apps. I think you almost had to be like 
a CAD drawer or know some kind of HTML or things like that. Unfortunately, I feel like I graduated on the cusp of when all that was taking off and it hadn't hit my art school for me yet. I feel like the way of the future of that is going to be VR and AR. I don't know if you guys know of the company Downtown Brand XR. They're trying to make VR and AR more accessible and easier to use for marketers and businesses. They've done a lot of really cool stuff with Wayne State University and their medical school and some of their training and medical stuff, as well as they've done events, which Sarah for virtual events, they've done these augmented reality banners that people can run through when they do virtual 5Ks and stuff like that. So it's actually kind of a neat thing. I feel like that's the direction that's going. That reminds me, Charlotte, like just random side tangent here, but I've always thought when you go to an exhibitor hall that it would be so nice if almost like The Sims, did you guys ever play The Sims and how they have the little diamonds on top of their head that tell you when they need to go to the bathroom or they want to watch TV or take a nap or something. And if you could go onto a trade floor and have some kind of virtual reality glasses or something that showed you who were your top qualified prospects and the information about them above them, how cool would that be to prime you for a better conversation? And just like, it's creepy, but it's also cool because you could have such a better connection and actually help address some of their pain points and challenges. It seems like it would be a win-win. Granted, I'm sure people would hate having all their information displayed above them. So There's a dreamer right there. That reminds me of something that my mom said this weekend. She said that she wishes that there was some kind of spray that you could spray into a room and see the COVID particles. And I was like, yeah, mom, like, that's so cool. Like, that'd be really great. You you should invent that and you'd be a millionaire. I guess I'll go ahead and talk about my education. This is Katie. And I graduated about six years ago. And I don't know what I thought marketing was. I feel like one of my teachers in high school, I was on student council in high school, so maybe it was from that class, told me that I would be good at marketing. So I was like, oh, that's great. And then I just decided to go to college for marketing. I feel like I remember a point in time where I thought that marketing was basically advertising. I don't think I understood the difference between marketing and advertising. And while they go hand in hand, at my school, advertising was in the art school and then marketing was in the business school. And I had signed up for marketing. So I learned that they were not the same. I don't know what I expected to be doing, but I can easily say that I have learned much more in marketing in real life jobs and internships and situations than I did in my four years of business school. I am the exact same way, Katie. So it's actually been eight and a half years since I graduated college, which seems like a long time, but it went by fast, but it also kind of has been a long time. I don't know, like the life is just blurring together. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how to convey that. But I was in the same boat where our advertising degree or the individuals that were moving towards that direction were in the communications college and those that were in marketing were going to the business college. And I just remember sitting in classes and having conversations around foot in the door strategy or SWOT analysis and all these things that you learn and hear about and are able to define and score well on an exam because you can identify all these things or pair up the proper definitions with the terms. But until you actually get into the work 
and have to apply those techniques, I feel like you really have no idea what you're in for. And you're kind of like, wait, what? What happened? Like, how is this? How does this work? It just seems so overwhelming because now you actually have something to apply it to. But I feel like maybe it's changed. I hope universities have found better ways to help people apply those. But I don't know. I would be curious to hear from people who are currently in school. And I guess that leaves me to go last, the old girl here. So I graduated 14 years ago now. Oh, God, it feels like actually actually a century ago, unlike pages six years ago that she says feels like a century ago. I am definitely the outlier here because I graduated with a degree in recreation and a minor in business. So I think I maybe took one marketing class with the business minor. So I'm sure that trends have definitely changed since then as to what you know they thought we should focus on in that marketing class. Also, this was 14 years ago, so who knows how often I actually attended or if I remember anything from back then. What I definitely thought I was going to be doing is way different than everybody else here and anything to even do with marketing. So I don't think that that correlates really very well there at all with what I was going to do. I love that, Kelly. I didn't know it was recreation. That's interesting. What what's your, your want with recreation? Like So my actual degree is commercial recreation and facility management. So I always envisioned being the person at a resort that runs all the activities. Oh, gotcha. Those people are fun. I feel like you really have to be peppy and, you know, you got to you get your shit together and you're definitely a games person. So that makes sense. Where did you work after school, Kelly? Did you ever go try to be one of those people at a resort? Yep. Or so I feel like I could do an episode on the actual first reality with those ones, too. <laughs> so I never went anywhere. Cause the whole point was that I wanted to be south and like be on a beach and be somewhere warm where I worked at these resorts. Right. So I didn't actually do that until afterwards, but I worked at Lifetime and I ran like the member activity section. So it's like where the kids use the rock wall or swim lessons or summer camp. So we ran all of those programs for them, but it wasn't necessarily a nice tropical place. I mean, I did move to Houston for it at one point, but that's still not like the beach tropical resort thing that I was envisioning when I first graduated. I envision a resort in Playa del Carmen, Mexico, and then you organizing tequila volleyball. <laughs> exactly where my thought went to, Katie. I was like, ooh, I have so many fond memories of this. <laughs> Agreed. I think that's what I also thought, you know, at the ripe age of 21. Like, let's go live in a resort and do all that. And that doesn't actually happen. Also, I feel like the people that run those the games and stuff now, I just feel so bad for them because it's like constant nonstop. <laughs> They don't sleep. They serve you breakfast in the morning. They're running the pool activities in the afternoon and they're your bartender after dinner. And I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know when they sleep. So I don't know. Maybe it worked out well that you didn't end up doing it. Yeah. yeah you live in paradise, but you have no life. Cool. A blessing in disguise. Kelly has ended up here with us. <laughs> so I think that kind of sums up what we were thinking about in terms of our expectations and maybe what marketing was back when we were studying but in reality, we did learn things like communications, customer insights, marketing strategy, digital marketing, account management and relationship management, public relations, all these things, right? And I think, Paige, from a design perspective, you and Sarah probably had some of this too, like the art history, the graphic design, animation, drawing and painting, all of those 
nude models, things of that nature. And I think that's what most people expect to learn or discuss when they go into certain majors. But the question is, how does it really apply to what you're doing once you go into a full-time job in the workforce? So thinking about things that we never really knew we'd be doing, to kick it off, Paige, I think logos and some of the branding wasn't really what you expected when you jumped into the workforce or real world design, I guess we could say. Yeah. So logos are a huge part about being a designer and a marketer because marketers have to do a lot of aspects as well that I'll dive into. But when you think logos, you automatically go to designer. A designer would do that. That's who you'd reach out to. But weirdly enough, I don't actually recall building a logo from scratch in college which I find very, very weird. Like we did all the other fundamentals, but we never actually created logos and had that as a project. So I kind of knew I'd be doing logos and branding outside of college, but I didn't know to the extent of how much I would be because we did, like I said, fundamentals, print work, a little bit of website design, like we did those things. And in reality, 70% of my freelance work is logos and branding. And I do that for a lot of small businesses. So that was kind of a big reality check for me of like, shit, I really have to get good at this. And I have to learn the different types of logos and how to apply them and teach my clients how to use logos. So that's definitely something I do every single day. When you got your first logo job, what did you do? Were you kind of like, oh, shoot, like I didn't learn this. Yeah, I, I mean, you kind of are like, well, you just have to make it work. And it's definitely not something I'm going to put on my portfolio, but you don't even know how to ask the right questions because now I've been doing it so much where if a client requests a logo, I ask all these other questions of like, okay, do you have logos that you like now? Could you send me examples? What don't you like? What colors are you like responding to? Do you like only type logos, which is like word marks? Do you like ones with symbols? Like there's a lot of details that go into logos that you don't want to waste your time designing, you know, until you talk to them. I mean, this is just me being naive, but aren't there like a lot of rules with logos too? Like, are there a bunch of like regulations or something that you have to follow and like how to use them correctly and things like that? Yeah. So that's why a branding guideline is really important to create once you have that logo, because you want to explain how to use it. Cause there's a lot of things of like, there's, you want to have margins. That's usually included you want to show that there's different types of logos usually there's about three different types because they're used in different aspects of whatever you're building it'll include like your color palette your typefaces paragraph styles like there's certain rules that you're supposed to kind of lay out in this guideline to help you and that's kind of I think where marketing comes into play because you guys have to follow those So Paige, if there was a young designer out there who's being asked to create their first logo, what kind of logo branding tips and tricks would you recommend for them? Or where should they start? Because they probably need a starting place and they're probably a little overwhelmed. Yeah. So, okay. Well, the big thing is budget. I mean, you want to make sure that your time is worth it and that they're getting what they want out of it. So if their budget is $300, you know that that's how much you have to invest in it. Generally, a logo nowadays is about like 500 to 1,000. So talk to them about budget, talk to them about what their inspiration is because they're gonna come into it and have at least an idea of what they like and don't like. 
So generally, I ask them to provide three examples of logos they like and three they don't. And that kind of helps me narrow things down. Before I send them logos, I need to pare it down. You don't want to give them 50 logos to review because that just gets to be overwhelming and they don't know what they want. They get a little confused. Another thing I recommend is sending your logo in one color. Generally, I send it in black first because color actually is very easy to kind of sway people. They want to see it finished right away, but that's not generally the easiest way for people to review 20 different options, you know? So I say like use one color, black is the first option. And then once they narrow it down to maybe five, then add in those other colors and start to build it out more. So I've gone through this process with you before, Paige, and I feel like that was super helpful to review just the logo in a solid black color because then you could actually identify which font you liked and you didn't have the colors kind of swaying your preference. And the other thing was, we might have shared this in the freelance episode. What's that program that you use to send it to your clients? It's super cool and it's really interactive. You did it for the wine and whiteboards logo page. Do you remember you gave us all the different fonts and the different images and the colors? And we were like, yes, no, yes, no. And it was very cool and interactive. I just had to put it in my search engine and it came up. It's called Use Pitch Proof. It's a newer one. I think it's like a younger kid in this like 20s, 30s that started it. So it's like not super big. I'm sure there's other ones like this out there. But that's really nice to make it look presentable to your clients instead of just sending them a PDF. Because what this does is you can add in logos and show different variations. So you can show it in black. Once you build it out, you can show it in different colors. You can show it in white, how it'll kind of look on top of a photo. And then you can give a description on the side. I I definitely recommend looking that up if you are a designer. So it's called usepitchproof.com. Awesome. Um, I feel like design is probably a really good segue into the next thing that we identified as something we learned when being in the workforce. And by the way, if you do have other questions about pages, freelance and stuff, we did do an entire episode on it. I believe it's episode 11, talking about balancing your nine to five and freelance. I know we covered a lot of the design stuff in there as well that people can look at. But one of the big ones that stood out to the group was print work. Because I feel like we're in a very, very digital world. And I don't think print was something I really thought about. I know when I jumped into the role, we were creating collateral and brochures and things of that nature. And I don't think you really learn in school when you would use print versus digital. And then what's the difference? And what do you need to think about differently in terms of layout and presentation and things of that nature? So because I didn't know anything about print or the process or how it worked. I relied on our designers to do that, but it is helpful to understand what that process is and what you need to do to get there. I can follow up on that, Charlotte. When it comes to understanding when to use print versus digital, when someone is requesting a piece of collateral, I will always ask them, how do you envision using this? Because I think people that have been in business for a while, at least in my experience, they want to print everything before they even think through their use cases. So if someone can't tell me when they are going to use something in person, I'm not going to print it. If we need to print it down the road, then that's totally fine. 
But I always ask about a use case. And most of the time, it's just like attaching it in an email or wanting to link to it somewhere on our website. And this year, that's really worked out in our favor. I didn't print anything unnecessary. And then the that we didn't, didn't end up having events. So we don't have a surplus of all these supplies. We learned why you don't print a lot in bulk, at least, or why you asked the question ahead of time, because we were moving offices this summer. And we had a lot of collateral pieces that we bought in bulk because it's cost savings. There's a lot of those things involved. But at the end of the day, we didn't use it and now it's outdated and we're not going to be using it. So I think we recycled like a thousand collateral pieces at the end of the day, which is really unfortunate. So we've learned from our experience too. ask those questions, see if you really need to print it. If you do, make sure the quantity isn't outrageous and you can always reprint. I think part of it was we listened to someone else or we went with their request and not trusting ourselves as the experts there. So unfortunately it backfired because we did literally print, I'm pretty sure a thousand and they sat for years in this box. And eventually when we did move, we did have to put them in the recycling and it makes you feel bad. I think a lot of us are environmentalists here, so I don't feel like we felt good about the number of trees that we probably destroyed in that process. And I remember initially we pushed back on it, but at a certain point, I think we were still young in our roles and didn't feel confident to be like, no. I think now we're almost probably would rather have to pay a little bit more per unit to print less and then reprint more in the future if it's actually needed. And that's probably the smarter way to go. Also, if you're printing for a trade show and whatever you're printing is not something that is going to be handed out individually and you're just having these sit on your booth, people don't take as much as they did in the past. I've found that if we just lay a stack on our booth, that it doesn't really go. And my particular audience, it is younger, like college-aged students, People are picking up a piece of collateral, taking a picture of it, and putting it back down because they don't want to carry it. They don't want it. And if you've been to trade shows, there's a chance that you've probably been like, oh, this is nice. I'm going to take this, put it in my bag. And then did you really review what you put in your bag? I don't, I typically don't. I feel like I always have intentions to. So I don't know. I, I typically print maybe 100 before an event, and it usually lasts me a lot longer than I expect. Don't we like a 1% rule? So if there's a thousand people attending, then you do a hundred collateral pieces? Or is that 10%? We've said 10%, but I think it depends on the actual show and your niche and how targeted the audience is. But Katie, didn't you come up with a solution where you got it so that people could text a number to get a copy of it, emailed to them or texted to them a piece of collateral so they didn't have to actually take a physical copy? Yep. So we have a resource bank on our website. And if someone likes a piece of collateral that they found, they can just type in their phone number and it will text them the PDF to their phone. And then we'd have used this at events before. Unfortunately, we only had a couple before COVID set in and we didn't have a lot of big events this year. But our intention was to have a couple iPads at our booth where we would have one of our new pieces of collateral up and they could enter their phone number at the booth because you want to get them, get it well taught. So like get, get them to enter their phone number when you're at the booth and they could have it texted to them immediately. 
So we only got to try that out one time and I don't think it was as successful as I wanted to, but I wasn't at the event. So I can't really speak to that, but I was excited about it and I'm excited to try it again. Speaking of COVID, do we anticipate that this portion of duties of us printing things off might go away if people aren't going to be wanting to take things from random people anymore? Yeah, definitely. I think it's going towards that digital realm, which for us, we decided against doing things print work this this spring because we didn't know what was going to happen. And I think we're going to continue to wait on those those printing aspects. But something we actually recently did that was print work that was really cool was we sent custom subscription boxes to our attendees for a virtual conference. So Sarah was creating all these really cool swag and everything, and they wanted this experience element, having that engagement. And so we're like, well, how do we fill that void? So we came up with the idea of mailing them all of this so that they could open it and enjoy it during the conference. So it kind of filled that void. People loved the swag boxes. They were so cool. We had a lot of lessons learned, though, so I think this should be a whole episode Also, I realized it was another shipping problem for me. And as we've already established in some of the drunken marketing episodes, I don't do well with shipping. So probably should have had Paige handle this project. I'm still shipping out the laggard boxes of people who registered late and the conference already happened last week. So that's how it's going right now. But I'll have some lessons learned and I'll make it a better experience for you in the future. Well, I think I jumped ahead a bit, but I figured I may as well give some tips on subscription boxes because I do actually do a lot of this in my freelance. I work with a subscription box company in LA and we do a lot of custom work. So a few really quick tips for that one is remember that cardboard absorbs color a lot more than you think. When you pick a color digitally, even a Pantone, it's not necessarily going to print that way. It might print lighter. We did one where it was supposed to be like a lilac purple and it ended up printing cobalt blue, completely different. So definitely do test prints when you're doing that and definitely do that ahead of time so you have enough to fix it. And then also cardboard gets super, super dirty when it's shipped. So don't do a lot of light colors. It's look like it's, it almost skim off the color and it'll look like cardboard uh, and it won't hold over time. But I think those are my key tips for subscription boxes. I actually realized something as we were talking about this topic. Not in a single class in college did I learn how to frame up or craft marketing materials like brochures, content, all of that. That was not something that was taught in my classes. I'm thinking about all the things that we've printed, all of the collateral, all of those things. Nobody ever broke it down and said, here's what your brochures and collateral should, here's like a good flow or a good approach or process, like nothing ever. That's mind blowing to me. And I just realized it. And the same way, Charlotte, I, I explained in the beginning, but like we never worked with marketers and designers together in college. That's one thing that's weird. But also, I mean, our process is very clear cut and we can walk through it really quick too, but I never did any of that. I I was never given content and then being like, go ahead, your project is creating a flyer. No, never. It was like, okay, what do you want this print work to look like? Throw in fake text, just make it, it was like essentially to make it pretty. And it wasn't the function that we need. And like, there's a lot of this that you have content and you need to display this content and sell it and market it in a way that's 
digestible. And there's like so many aspects. It's just mind boggling. And because it's not taught, that's why like how much bad collateral have you guys seen where like you've picked it up and we're like, what is it? What am I supposed to be doing? And so just to be clear to our listeners, we do record these episodes ahead of time. So the election has not happened yet. And I've been getting a lot of content collaterals and print things in the mail regarding the election. And I specifically remember this piece that I picked up a couple weeks ago. And it didn't say, don't vote for this person, vote for this person. The content wasn't clear. It just says, this person said X. And I think that the party that sent it out meant it to be a bad thing. But if you don't know a lot about politics, it could have been portrayed about a good thing. So there was no clear goal of the piece. And I think it was just really confusing to a lot of people. It was confusing to me. And like, I had to look at who sent it to me to figure out what they were trying to do. But I don't know. I, it's like, this is, ex- this is exactly why you need to be good at creating your message. Well, one of the things I was going to say is that Paige actually created a survey for us. We created something in SurveyMonkey for our internal teams to fill out because no one knows the questions that they need to ask or respond to in order to get a piece of collateral created, right? So they're always missing the who, what, where, when, why. I know that sounds so basic, but we keep forgetting it. And so someone will send us this blurb or tell us they want to create a piece of collateral. And we have no idea what the goal or the purpose of it is. We have no idea who the audience is. We don't know what vertical or market it needs to be for and what logos it needs to include. And these are all things that Paige needs in order to actually go back and create the document. A lot of people will send us this little snippet or blurb in an email and it's missing all these key elements that, yes, we could create something, but we don't know if it's going to accomplish the right goal if we don't know what you're trying to accomplish to begin with. It sounds silly, but it's super basic. And when people don't fill it out, the collateral piece never goes well from the beginning. I would actually say that we should share those questions and share that out to our audience. I feel like that would be a useful thing. Well, even just like what Katie was saying, that like these presidential things that are going out to what everybody in a state or everybody like part of their party, right? And even they didn't ask those basic questions to know what is the meaning of this flyer and are we actually getting it? So it's clearly higher up people than whatever we are that are still not realizing they need to be asking these questions. So events are the next thing that I think I want us to dive into because events are one of those things that you definitely don't get prepared for. I think unless you are somebody that went to school for event planning or hospitality or something like that. But Sarah, I had an idea for whenever we go to events from now on, I feel like we should take pictures of bad collateral. And I feel like we should be like create like an archive of bad collateral and share it out and share why they're not good. Because <laughs> I feel like we are very critical of our markets and like can, what else. Can we make like produce? a marketing burn book? I do think that would be useful. I mean, I don't mean it in a mean way. So maybe we remove like the name or the logo. Yeah. But yeah. What it, that would be a really cool piece if you took collateral and you highlighted the key parts that aren't working or how this could have been better, right? Maybe maybe how it could be better would be the more appropriate positive spin on this. But they're really, 
I think sometimes when you're creating collateral or things for a specific event, you you get so focused and tunnel vision on just that, that you sometimes miss all the critical pieces. And someone who isn't in tune with that event or what you do would have a lot of questions for you and would come away confused about what that even is for. So I think it's always good to run your collateral by someone who might not be as in touch with the market or with your industry as you are. I actually just posted this today on our social. It was like the stat was 43% of people skim. And I mean, I'm prone to it. I don't read full paragraphs. Like I'm a skimmer. I'll read the header. And if I'm interested, maybe I'll read further. But there's a lot of those things of hierarchy that you have to differentiate the size, the color. Like there's a lot of those elements that come into play and some people just really butcher them. So I would be interested in this burn book as well. Or as Sarah would say, the what we could do better book instead of burden book. So I think that leads us into some of the event stuff because events are one that like, gosh, guys, nothing in school prepared me for events. Nothing at all. Like from where do you source and find swag, knowing that you even need swag and that swag is a thing, like all the way down to the shipping and all the different pieces of it. Like no one teaches you that stuff. So hold on. Before COVID, how many events were you guys doing a month or even a quarter? Well, it depends. There's like seasons, right? So the beginning of the year is usually pretty light and it picks up for our industry in particular in May, June. And then it goes pretty heavy all the way until I would say almost the end of the year or it starts to taper off in like October. I would say for Katie with her industry, there's actually a lot going on in January and February And then I would say hers is probably consistent, like an event or two a month until like October. It's brutal. I feel like that just shows how much we didn't expect events to be in our realm as much, but just doing it even almost every month. Like that's nuts. Well, I think we did this in like a last episode where it was the expectation versus reality. And we were talking about like trade show backdrops. Oh. Yeah. So like these things came into play of like, does it ship easily? Does it need to be shipped via crate or freight? Do you need to have someone and like take it from the loading dock and bring it to your booth? Does it come apart easy? There's so many of those things that you don't really go into detail. Oh, okay. Well, this has to ship. This has to be assembled. I might not be there to assemble it. Is someone going to be able to know how to do this? There's a lot of those things that you don't really even realize for a trade show. That's a huge red flag. If if it's too hard for you to put together as the marketing person in the office, then you cannot send it to a trade show where you will be there because there's no way the people that you are sending are going to have the patience or the time to put it together. We've experienced that with p- different people in our organization and I don't fault them for it. I get if it was too hard to put together, then it was too hard to put together. We've made some mistakes with backdrops. Or like they've been, sometimes it's with shipping so many of these backdrops, they get a little dinged up. So with pull-up banners, these are like the death of us sometimes. They're essential, you know, they're easy to ship theoretically because they kind of collapse. But when they get banged up, they get dented and then you can't open them properly. So then we've had a lot of them sent back of like, it was damaged, we couldn't open it. What do we do? There's no backup. And we've had those headaches too. So I think we've been able to fix a few of them, but like sometimes you're just shit out of luck and 
you don't have that backdrop because of some instance. Sometimes you just have to look into a, a new format, right? Like at, at one point, Charlotte, I think I was going to this one backdrop place several times because the backdrop had broken. And while I was there trying to get them to help me fix it, they broke it more. They were trying to get it together and it like actually broke more. And I kind of was like, well, who's going to pay for this? You guys broke this more and we need a new backdrop. So Sometimes I know the pull-up banners, we've looked at several different options because clearly the ones we have, either we need better padding or better packaging, or we just need a new way of sending them or a new frame that doesn't break so easily. It's kind of nuts how expensive these backdrops are because even if you want to just change the cover and keep having the metal backdrop, those are like, what, 300 minimum, I think we've printed in the past. So if you mess it up, and it's printed wrong or you did a wrong design, like that's an expense you have to fix. No, but what I was going to say is I feel like this kind of touches on this consistent thread that we see through everything as it pertains to events, which is vendor management. Because nobody, I don't feel like anyone teaches you vendor management. How do you negotiate? How do you how do you source the right vendors? How do you evaluate vendors? How do you compare them? All of that stuff. And I don't think anyone, I don't know, I didn't learn it. I mean, maybe some places teach it, but apparently my education that I paid for did not teach me. (laughs) Like, it wasn't cheap. I think that vendor management is so delicate because in the end of the day, you are the customer. So they should want to make it right for you. However, as Sarah said in a previous episode, you want to be a fucking pleasure to work with because then if it's someone good, then you probably will want to continue to go back to them. Then if they're not, then you know that it's time to move on. I think one of the most helpful ones for myself, at least for vendor management, is finding a really good printer because we have a printer who is local. He'll do drop-offs for us. He'll ship things for us. His, his time management is exceptional. We will ask him to do something and he can turn it around in like three days, which a lot of the times that happens, especially with events. So finding a really good printer is something I recommend trying to get as a marketer. Shout out to Keith. Yes. Keith is awesome. He does hand delivery sometimes. I know. I think he just likes to talk to me (laughs) but he's done such a great work for us in the past and he's really open to trying new things so I always recommend finding a good printer and sticking with it and if you're not happy with them continue to look elsewhere I know my freelance we found a lot of different printers that we can get discounts with or they're just more consistent with their printing skills so those types of things come into play real quick about Keith you know who he reminds me of that I'd never thought about before him and RJ are very similar yeah, definitely. Like yeah. in their personality and the way they converse with you and have conversation. Like it, it's totally not a bad thing in any way, shape or form. RJ, if you're listening, like it's a very good thing. You and Keith are very similar. And I just thought of it. I was actually going to say Mr. Rogers. I mean, I think I in the end it pays to have a good local printer. So someone that either you can go to visit them if you need to work out some kinks and they can come visit you if you need to. But sometimes you can't pick who your vendors are. So, for example, with like booth designs, we have to work within the confines of the people who put on some of our shows and they have preferred vendors and they have their own rules and regulations. Sometimes 
you can't pick who you want to use for for food, for example. You have to use their set vendors. And a lot of times they're more expensive than someone you would be able to find in the outside world to bring something in. But unfortunately, those are part of the guidelines of the trade show. And you have to worry about when you can ship things and when you can get things there and what the restrictions are. We've probably mentioned this before, but we've made mistakes with like fire codes and not being able to stack boxes behind our backdrop and having a blimp that rose too high above the height restrictions. And I don't know, there's probably been countless other ones. And I try to read the rules, but occasionally you just can't read all the rules. I don't know. It's something you have to get used to. And you get better the more you work with a certain company or a certain trade show or organization. You kind of figure out how they do things and how you can get around certain things. But it takes time. I feel like they come out of nowhere with some of these rules. And that limp is just a little bit too high. I was there with the fire code one and I was like, well, literally, what are you, what are you expecting us to do? Are you giving us a place to store them? No. If we compact them, is that going to change anything? No. Where are we supposed to put these? Are we going to recycle them? There was no place to put these boxes because we had brought in so many things with our event and swag and we needed them. And they just, it was, I remember that one being a very funny, like, ah, throw your hands up. I have no idea. Well, you can't even like bring the boxes back to your hotel room because there's too many. And a lot of times the trade show, like trade show or exhibit hall is in a very different place than your hotel. They're most times not connected. And we're always cheap as in we don't have them store our stuff. We don't have this amazing set booth and we ship it to and from locations and have them store it. So if you pay enough money, you can have them store all your stuff, like your actual crates in the back. But a lot of times ours are just cardboard boxes that are half broken and fallen apart by the time they arrive. So it's always an interesting experience. Do you remember having to pay someone to bring our boxes from one location of the hotel to another because it was union and we couldn't touch them? And we ended up having to wait like 20 minutes for them to arrive to bring them. And we definitely could have gotten it all done and taken care of by that point. I feel like that was a really weird instance with Vegas. Yeah, that was super interesting. So that's also something to be aware of if you are having an event at a union-based hotel. And absolutely nothing against unions, but sometimes it just takes a little bit longer for things to get done. Well, and thinking about restrictions, they even put restrictions on things like the registration lists and how often you can reach out to the people that are on the registration lists and who you can reach out to and that sort of thing. And navigating that and knowing like your approach for that, I think is something that is not traditionally taught. So like, for example, when you go to an event and you get a pre and post attendee list, sometimes you only get pre attendee list sometimes you get post like it really just depends on the event and then you as a marketer need to sift through that list and understand who your target market is and what individuals you want to contact because the worst thing you can do is spam an entire attendee list if they're not part of your target market and it's very obvious when people do this and it's horrible. So if it's your first time working an event or jumping into marketing and doing this and you receive an attendee list, do not email everybody on that list. Sift through it, figure out who you want to contact and what does your follow-up look like? What do you want them to do? What is your communication expressing to them? Because if you just send an email saying, hey, 
come to our booth. Like it's probably not going to accomplish what you need. What are your call to actions that you really want people to take so that you can achieve your goals for the conference? And the final part of events that I feel like they did not teach us in school is packing and shipping. This is my nemesis. Is that the right word? My kryptonite is like, you have to learn to love or hate UPS and FedEx. I mean, if you can learn to do like mass uploads and bulk uploads for shipping labels and you can be organized and write out box numbers and what's in each box. And if you can get someone on your awesome team to help you, Paige is super organized at this and always makes it an awesome experience. You can make it a better experience, but I can't say I've ever loved the shipping logistical part of it because that's where nightmares can happen. And if you want to hear more about it, you should check out our episode two and three for more on events. I feel like this is something that recreation actually did well, where we actually had to put on events. We had to do like a fundraiser or anything like that. I actually have experience in running an event from, you know, planning, starting, running, all that stuff. I wonder if the marketing school and advertising classes could mix together in college. I feel like you could also throw in recreation because then you can all work together because that's what it's going to be like once you get into your actual role moving on. So that might be something to think about, to throw out to people to make those connections now. I agree with that, Kelly. So actually, um, one of the girls that works with us on occasion at the office, she has an event planning and I think hospitality degree. And she had to do something similar, Kelly, where she actually had to host a mock event. And she had to put on this entire conference, hypothetically, but she had to get sponsors. She had to arrange all the booth stuff. She had to do all of these items. And I think that's something that would be really useful. And I wish like I had been able to go through something like that. So I think some schools are doing it. And it sounds like your rec program did it. But I don't know if it's a widely shared thing. I would be curious to hear from some of the listeners if their school covers it in their marketing classes. So something that I definitely did not know I would be doing almost daily is PowerPoints. I do PowerPoints all the freaking time because we're marketing sales. We need to create those to talk to our clients, to talk to prospects, to sell people. And so we use PowerPoint for things, our sales decks, webinars, event presentations, proposals. It's a very useful tool. I mean, you know how to use PowerPoint, but do you know how to use it effectively? I think that's something that we've all learned going into our nine to five, because it's very, very clear when someone does not have the know-how or the design skills to create a proper slide. And I've seen it where people just slap a photo in there, slap a paragraph and call it a day. And there's no rhyme or reason to anything. And it's like, I want to pull my hair out because you're not you're not being effective. It's not helping anything. No one's reading that. So I definitely want to share some tips, I think, in this one. I just want to share that I couldn't agree with you more, Paige, that if you thought somebody maybe had some design skills of some sort, the real test is a PowerPoint. It becomes very abundantly clear when somebody does not have design skills and they put together a PowerPoint. And it matters. The the way it looks and flows and transitions and the text, like all of that matters. And it's so important. And I think sometimes it's a very underrated area of marketing and design. I admit, I am hardcore judging every PowerPoint I ever look at. 
if you use yellow text on a white background, I'm judging you. And if you take a screenshot of an Excel chart and just paste it into a PowerPoint with a bunch of lines and numbers and stuff that I can't read, I'm judging you. I'm sorry. We actually went as far as I built out a PowerPoint training for people at our company because I can't build every single PowerPoint at our 100 person company. It just that's all I would be doing. So to help with that and help with my workload, we did this training. And so I walked people through what the best steps are, how to create crops, how to do crop marks for photos, how to change the hierarchy of text, how to customize bullets, how to add animations. I went into every little detail and I actually heard a lot of really good responses afterwards, but I don't know if people are really taught PowerPoint. It's just like you expect to know it or you Google it. Well, I think what they teach you is what you learn in high school or something, right? They're you're going to have to build a PowerPoint. There's design templates for you in the program. Just use one of those. Well, that doesn't work when you have a brand and an identity and everything that your personality that you're trying to convey as an organization or a business. And I think this goes back to my point earlier about crafting a lateral and brochures. Like there is a specific recipe for creating a good PowerPoint and in terms of your content and your and how you present and how you engage your audience. And I think those are all elements too. And the design piece is just one element of it. And I don't think that whole content and engagement piece is really taught when it comes to PowerPoint. I did have to use PowerPoint a lot in college with different presentations, definitely at the business school and whatnot. And I'm also someone who took your PowerPoint class at our work, and I still to this day use the skills that I learned in that class. So I think that it was very valuable for everybody. I'm like so excited about that because I mean, I think the last one I did was almost two years ago. So I'm really happy that they kind of stuck with you. And I was super nervous giving it because I was talking to 40 people in one room. Well, and the funny point is, actually, I remember building PowerPoints in college for classes and presentations and stuff. And I think back, they were probably the most awful presentations ever because no one had taught me these things. I was like, okay, you put bullets on a slide. These are your talking points. They were probably pretty bad. (laughs) For PowerPoint tips that have to do with design, these are my top ones. If you can help it, create a PowerPoint template. Generally, I do 10 to 30 slides. And this helps a lot because then your company can just copy and paste, add their content, and be done. So you can find a lot of these online, and you can download them and customize them, or you can build it from scratch. It's in your slide master. And when you customize those, you can add your branding. So you can add your logos, your colors, your typography. You can get really fancy if you want. But another one is do not use paragraphs. Try and break it up with text and different hierarchies, sizes, use graphics. If you're going to use text, it has to be a minimum of 12 point font because someone needs to be able to read this five feet across the room in a presentation. Clear as day, that's what it has to be. I would advocate larger than that page, actually. I would advocate like 18. I feel like 18 should be the smallest font you should go for on a presentation. I know you can go smaller in some cases, but if headers and anything that like should be bold should not be anything smaller than 18. Well, you can put all the notes that you need in the notes section, right? If you have paragraphs, put that in the notes. And when you're actually displaying the PowerPoint, you'll be able to read that yourself. 
I hate to say this because our former CMO said it when I first joined the marketing team and it really annoyed me, but limb, less is more. And I think Charlotte and I were even just reminded of it on a few slides that we had for a conference we did last week where they were like, cut it down. You don't need this. Take that out. This is the main highlight. Unfortunately, it takes a few iterations because you just have to keep looking at it and you shouldn't be reading from the PowerPoint slides yourself unless you're reading from the notes section or something like that. Because otherwise, attendees are going to read it and they're not going to listen to you when they're reading the slides. Yeah, I think that's super key, Sarah. You don't want them to get ahead of the presentation, them being your audience. You want to be in control of what you're presenting and sharing and when they absorb that information. Well, I, was, I was just about to jump in and say, like, that's a perfect segue to say you can use animations to help keep people's attention and have them see exactly what you want at that point. You don't want to go crazy with animations, but they can be super helpful when you have bulleted information or you're building a PowerPoint step-by-step step because you don't want to give things away or have people get distracted by something you haven't talked about yet. Definitely don't do the bounce, swirl, jump, all of those, that crap. I call it crap. Just keep it simple and just do it where you click and it appears just nice and clean. Well, these kids nowadays have it awesome where they can put in their memes and gifts where we just really had word art and then like click a space bar and then the new bullet point will show up for them. I forgot about word art. That was like the big thing when they taught us PowerPoint when I was in like fifth grade. Wasn't that when Clippy was around too? And like he would yeah. jump up to help you? Yeah, we're, we're sure. dating ourselves. I want to get into our last topic because number one, we're going to run on time. And number two, it's actually a very relevant topic for the upcoming holidays. And we're actually going to do a separate episode on this topic, which is gifting. And it's interesting because I don't feel like gifting is something that you really anticipate getting involved in as a marketer. But for some reason, anything that ends up being creative, I feel like people loop you into. So you get asked to help with client gifts, team member gifts, anniversary gifts, partner gifts, all these different things. And it can be kind of a new thing if you've never done it before. So you definitely want to think about your budget when you're doing gifts. What budget do you have to work with? Who do you need to get these items to? What would be appropriate? Is it men? Is it women? Is, does it have to be agnostic? There's a lot of different things to take in consideration when you're evaluating what type of gifts to send to external parties or even internal parties within your own organization. Don't plaster your logo all over the gift or swag that you're giving them because at the end of the day, they don't want your logo. They want something that's customized for them. And we've done it where we've used a cute quote or phrase or tagline that's worked a lot better. We have had the logo on there, but it's a lot more tasteful size or placement because, I mean, do you guys wear anything that has plastered like MasterCard or whatever it is on like a hat or a mug? No, you're not going to, even if you like the company. So that's just think about those things when you're doing the gifts. My best advice is to think about what you would like and appreciate and wear or use. If it's crap or junk and you don't think that you would use it the next day after you get it, then don't order it or use it because it's wasteful and it's not helpful to that person. So we'll share more on how you can find a lot more things on Google and you can basically customize anything these days. So your creativity and what you can come up with is basically the limit when it comes to client gifting. And actually, I want to build on what Paige said about the uh, logos and stuff. We've used 
phrases or to quotes and things like that. And we always pick ones that align with our company or our values or a theme that we're using because that way it's not just totally random. It aligns and it seems like it fits. So that's always a, a good approach. Should we dive into takeaways? Yeah, let's dive into takeaways. So we're going to cover gifting in another episode and we'll dive deep into this, but we wanted to just do a quick highlight here to share that this is something that we get pulled into that we never anticipated. But let's wrap this up, guys, and let's talk about some quick takeaways. Yeah, so at the end of the day, our first one is marketers and designers add a ton of value and we do a lot more than you realize. We do a lot more than just making things look pretty. So definitely show your appreciation and support and some respect behind the work that's get put into it. If you're just graduating, be open to different oppor- job opportunities. Marketing has a lot more breadth and depth than you'd ever imagine. So make sure you cast your net wide and you dig into what interests you to learn a little bit more. It's better to get a quick handle of everything there is in marketing and then dive into what you actually want to do. And then I would also add, learn to build relationships because marketing has a lot to do with managing people, events, vendors, products, all of the different areas. You become a master communicator and people expect you to be a master communicator and building those relationships will only help you excel, even if it's with prospects as well. I think sometimes that gets overlooked, but I think if you can build a community with your prospects, that will make you an even stronger marketer and help you get where you need to go. And don't be afraid to continuously ask questions and learn. So coming from someone who definitely doesn't have a marketing background, it's the only way to hit the ground running and kind of figure out the do's and the don'ts of the situation. We're always just going to be inquisitive and curious people by nature, but you want to kind of just ask what the customer's perspective and what their challenge is to truly help sell this product, right? And we've kind of talked about this earlier in the episode where when you're making these flyers and you're presenting them to people, you got to understand what are the basics of the questions we're trying to answer as we distribute these products to people. I'd also say use templates and Google shit if you don't know it. We say that all the time and we mean it. There are so many ways to cheat the system and to kind of make things easier for yourself because you don't want to have to recreate the wheel if you don't have to. And once again, be open to trying new things. You're going to do a lot of things that are outside the traditional realm as a marketer and a designer. You're going to learn from it. You're going to have some failures. You're going to become better. And that makes you a more valuable asset to the team and yourself. 100%. Couldn't agree more. All right. So that's a wrap. That's all we have for you today. If you know somebody, have a friend, colleague, coworker, family member, or enemy that you think would be interested in listening to the Wine and Whiteboards podcast, please share with them. And don't forget to subscribe or review. And I know I butchered a word in there and I could see you guys laughing, but that's okay. They still know what I'm talking about. And on that, I'm going to end it. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Wine and Whiteboards podcast. For show notes, links, templates, and other resources, visit our Instagram page at Wine and Whiteboards Podcast. And while you're there, follow us to get more hacks and occasional wine-themed humor. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you would take a minute to leave a review. And don't forget to subscribe so you can continue listening to our marketing tips and design tips. Cheers! Cheers.